Wow. You guys were awesome. Can I get some? I didn't skip you, I promise. Great job, Johnny. Oh, come on, Perringer. Nice work, guys. Good job, ladies. Magda girls, you were wonderful. Audrey. All right. Well, that's about as good as it gets. We can be done now with the morning. And we can start with breakfast burritos. Yeah. Burritos? Well, you got to go to your classroom first. If you're just walking in right now, there are always empty seats in the front row. Um, so come on in, grab a seat. We got some empty seats back here as well. So if you're looking for a seat, come on forward. Let's give one more round of applause for our kids. Now, hopefully you have that song stuck in your head like the rest of us parents who've had it the whole time. And you guys heard the words, right? That they knew more than any other words. What was it? It's Christmas time, right? Do we love Christmas? Seven of us love Christmas in this room. I mean, that's awesome. Do the rest of us love Christmas? All right. So a couple weeks ago, I saw this video and maybe you've seen it before, but it's from Jimmy Kimmel Live. Who here is a Jimmy Kimmel fan? Jimmy Kimmel Live. And he played this video and Anderson Cooper is going to introduce it. Go for it, Tony. Prank their kids by pretending to give them terrible Christmas presents and videotaping the results. Let's just say they really got into the spirit. They sent Kimmel so many videos, he's made a sequel. Take a look. What is it? I don't know about you guys. I don't know why we as parents find more joy in that than we do in actually giving them good gifts. But lots of ideas. Again, I hope that we're grateful this morning. Again, we got more seats in the front as you guys are just coming in here this morning. But often we think about Christmas. I think if you ask the average person at the average Starbucks in America, you said, hey, what is Christmas about? Two things would be at the top of the list. What what do you think two of those things might be? Gifts and Santa Claus, right? And this morning, a quick spoiler alert, I want you to know it's not what I think Christmas is all about. I think we're here this morning to celebrate Christ's birth, but I got to tell you, I'm also not here this morning to crucify Santa. I think this morning, we're going to have a lot of fun. We've already had fun, kids singing, but this morning, we're going to look at Christmas from Santa's perspective. 
something I've never done before. In fact, it's been kind of an interesting week as I've wrestled with what would Santa think about Christmas? What would he think about Jesus and about his birth and about the resurrection? Because I've got to be honest, this picture right here seems a little weird to me. And often I feel like in our society, if we're not careful, even as Christians, we put our nativity scene up, but then what we do is we put Santa right here. And he kind of covers up the nativity scene. Now that would never be true in your home, right? Never. But I love Santa. I think there's a lot of really cool, fun, exciting things about Santa. So this morning we're going to look at what happens when Santa trumps the nativity. And what's our response as Christians? And how do we interact with with the Bible as well as with the gospel and with the world that God has put us in? Unless you didn't know who Santa is, he looks like that. I've seen him, I promise. So this morning we're going to do, I'm going to ask for grace because some of you already are like, oh, I thought I came to church. What are we doing talking about Santa Claus? Some of you this morning are like, yeah, about time we talk about Santa in church. And I'm going to ask for grace because the odds are decent that I will offend both of you this morning. So give me grace as I wrestle with what does this look like? Looking at the text, looking at at the manger, looking at Christmas, specifically from Santa's perspective. It's the first part of a three-part series. Typically, we just walk through a text here at Vintage Grace. We grab a book in the Bible and we walk through it. So we've been walking through Ephesians for the last couple of months, and now we're getting ready to take this three break. So we're going to look at three perspectives. Because in Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about perspective. He talks a lot about looking at life from God's perspective, not from ours. Because we have a narrow perspective. We don't see the big picture often. So in light of Paul's encouragement so far in Ephesians, we're looking at three perspectives for the next three weeks, two and a half weeks. Santa this morning, Herod next week. Anyone ever thought about Christmas from Herod's perspective? Me neither. Herod was the king that actually ordered the murder of any kid under two years old where Jesus was born because he was threatened. So we're going to look at Herod's perspective next week. And then the following week, which is actually a couple days later, Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Jesus' perspective. What does Jesus tell us? What does he think about Christmas this morning? So as we get ready to walk through this, what Santa thinks, I want to be clear. This picture is not in the Bible. Santa kneeling at the manger. But I think if we thought about Santa, if we heard him out, I think he would find great joy in having the opportunity of kneeling by the manger, of worshiping the Savior. And of thinking about this from his perspective. I don't know if this picture is a weak attempt at baptizing secular Christian traditions, Christmas traditions, or if it's a subtle, subtle slam on secularism, ha ha, your Santa bows to my Savior. But the rat is this morning, I don't care what the author meant. I want to figure out what can he tell us about who God is and who Jesus is. But I'll need your grace, and we'll do that together this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we take some time this morning just to stop and think, just to think about who you are in giving us the greatest gift ever in Jesus, and that's what we celebrate this season. But also we live in a world that has all sorts of things going on, and Santa is just one of those. So I pray that as you allow us to stop and to be still, I pray that you would open our eyes to even see things a little differently than maybe we did this morning when we walked in. May we, like Santa in that picture, bow to our Savior this morning, and may we give you all the glory and all the honor, and may we celebrate you more than any and everything else. And all of his people said, amen. Hopefully you have your ugly sweater this morning. Again, if you're a guest, welcome. I don't normally dress this awesome. Um, This is special occasions. I've got my water bottle sweater as well. Um, So encourage you right after the service this morning, we're going to celebrate the greatest gift ever. 
So that's the plan for the morning. Now, when I think about Santa, specifically, I think that I don't know of a more polarizing character than Santa for the church. I've heard people in my office wrestling with, literally in tears as a husband and wife went at it, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with Santa? What is Christmas about? Do we ignore? Do we endorse? What do we do and how do we do it? And I want to look at two different extremes. The first one is, I remember that this argument between a husband and wife in my office, and she says, we have to celebrate. And he quickly said, we don't celebrate anything other than Jesus. And some of us, Baptist background, said, amen. <laughs> Meanwhile, his wife started to cry. Gentlemen, when you're in an argument with your wife, her crying is not a sign of success. You can win the fight, but lose the battle altogether. So two things, when I think about Santa in particular, that when I think of just the cost, what's the cost of Santa? Now, I don't mean your Christmas bills. I don't mean what does he charge you. I mean, what's the cost? What's the cost of having this construct of belief in Santa Claus? And the first one is this potential idolatry. I'm not trying to be extreme here at all. But when we think of idolatry, what do we often think of? We think of like a, a wax candle that we bow to, that we worship. I want to re- reframe our thinking a little bit about idolatry. Idolatry in my world is simply this. Anything that has more value than God intended it to have. Anything. Or anyone for that matter. Anything or anyone that has more value than God intended it to have. Anyone here worship the 49ers? Not anymore. I saw someone walking with a 49ers Santa hat on. I said, that is one ugly, ugly sweater outfit. There it is. Especially their offense. But see, I think we worship all sorts of things. I think that word celebrate, what gets you excited? If you want to know what you might be worshiping, what are your closet idols? What are the things that are hiding in your heart? Think about what gets you really, really excited. When you're wrestling with worshiping their kids, only two of us, the rest of you are liars. We wrestle with worshiping sports teams and cars and all sorts of things. Things that are often good gifts that God's given us. That we make an idol in our life. That we spend too much time, treasure, and talent wrestling with and trying to figure out and investing in. And I just want to be careful. Because anything that fits that category is a potential idol. Anything. I'm not picking on a guy in a red suit from the North Pole. I want us to look at our life and figure out what are the things in our life. Now, what I mean by idolatry is when we start to give attributes and credits and and powers to things that only God has. Just some of those this morning. Omnipotence, omnipresent, he's everywhere. Omniscient, he knows all. He's eternal. Now, some of us think that'd be really cool. Others of us go, note the way the world's going, I'd rather not. Take me to heaven. But we sing the song from Twas the Night Before Christmas, one of those famous poems written back in, was it 1823, where we learn all sorts of things about Santa and all of these attributes and all these characteristics. And I just want to be careful. You better watch out. You better not shout. You better not cry. I'm telling you. Why? Well, because Santa's coming to town. And he knows what? He knows everything. Now, some of us parents really like that. And in fact, we use it often, right? Now, no one here, I get it, right? Because we're anti-behavior modification and that kind of stuff. We would never tell our parents, Santa's going to see that. Yeah, right. In fact, that leads to kind of the second cost for me, potentially. Is that we start to unintentionally promote a works righteousness lifestyle. 
we start to promote that if you do this, then you get that. What is that? Well, for me, are my kids gone? Is my wife here? Okay. So for me, it's all sorts of things. We'll leave it at that. We'll have to come back after Christmas to figure that out. We promise works righteousness, behavior modification, do this and get this. And trust me, I fall into the same trap as the rest of us. Whether it's this or that, we use all sorts of things that allow us to tell our kids to do something. But really, what do we care about as the church? We care about heart change. We don't care about the externals. In fact, over and over again, Jesus hammered the Pharisees for focusing on the externals and works righteousness and not the internals, not what's going on in your heart. Doing the right thing is wonderful, but doing it repeatedly when it's obedience coming from the heart because I trust my God, because I trust my Savior. That's what we want as a church, which is why I say it's a concern of mine, potentially. Depending on how you use it and how you address it, it's just a concern of mine. I don't want to be careful for my own heart, for my own kids. Because although it's a cost, I also think that there's a great opportunity. Because the reality is, he's here. He's there. He's at Safeway. He's at the mall. He's everywhere. Not literally, but literally. So what's the opportunity for us? How do we interact with this? One of the, the most sad moments was sitting in this office with this couple, and he's like, honey, don't you know what Santa spells if you mix the letters up? And I was like, oh, no, you didn't. It spells Satan. You guys never heard that? Father, forgive all of us. Here's what I mean by the opportunity. See, I think sometimes we swing way extreme. I think other times we swing too far the other way. Like, ah, everything's permissible. Paul deals with that too in his letters. So one extreme, I have concern. Works righteousness, we don't see him for who he is. And on the other extreme, my fear is that we don't actually understand that everything in life is an opportunity for the gospel. Everything. Every conversation, every car accident, every time things go wrong, every Sunday morning when things don't go the way that I want them to go, and I'm like, all right, here's an opportunity to experience and interact with the gospel. The first one is actually that works righteousness, which if we're not careful, we promote we actually can do a great job of talking about the difference between what is works righteousness and what is the gospel. See, we live in a life where if you do this in your job, then you get rewarded with this. We want fair. We want equity. We want what's rightfully ours, except for in the spiritual world. Because here's the reality. God created the world and he created us to have a relationship with him. He created you perfectly in his image and he created to know you and for you to know him and for you to honor him. And I'm going to tell you guys a secret that I don't... Well, actually, it's not a secret. I tell this often. I personally never measured up to the standard which God called me to. I've fallen short. The Bible talks about this. It talks about for the wages of sin is death. That me and the way in which God designed me for relationship with him, that I didn't measure up, that I didn't keep my end of the bargain. And as a result of that, what's rightfully mine and what's fair is separation from God. God created me perfect, and, and there's times I've settled. I've settled for lesser joys. We use the word sin in, script, in Scripture, but also in the church. The way I define sin is simply this. Anytime I don't trust perfectly. So whether it's sinning on my taxes, 
whether it's sinning in, in my head, whether it's lust in my heart, whatever it might be. Anytime that I say, God, I'm not trusting you in the relationship that I have with my wife, in the relationship I have with my government, in the relationship I have with my neighbor, anytime that I'm cursing the guy cutting me off on the freeway, any of those moments, I'm just settling for less. There's an arrogance, there's a pride in my heart. And if we want what's fair, here's what we get according to the Bible. We get separation. We get death. We get hell. We get separation from God forever. And yet this is why I think Santa is such a great opportunity to give us a perspective on what is works righteousness and what is grace. What is grace specifically is for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one might boast. Here's the opportunity that we get presented as people who live in a world with Santa Claus. We can talk about him. We can talk about how this is how he operates. We can talk about this is how my God operates. My God doesn't operate based off of what you do for him. My God operates off of grace. Grace, the way I define it, is unmerited favor. It's unearned. There's nothing I can do to get more of it. There's nothing I can do to lose it. For by grace, you've been saved from myself through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Why? Because it was based on me. When I woke up on Christmas morning, you know what I would tell my parents? Man, I was good. Here's the proof. But when I see my God, I have nothing to say other than I need Jesus. And this is an opportunity that's presented for us, not just as parents, but as people. Maybe you don't have any kids. This is true of of the world we live in. We live in a works righteousness world. And I want to encourage us to think about what does Santa, Santa offer us to contrast that specifically, maybe with kids. Ask questions of your kids. I was a family life pastor once and I used to ask these questions. Where is Santa in the Bible? Now, parents, don't get depressed when they say, well, it's in this book after this book, and they point to the verse, right? Because they don't know unless you help them answer these questions. What's the difference between Santa and Jesus? Why is Santa better than Jesus? And their answer would be, oh, he's not. Because Santa brings me toys, my favorite answer, which actually came from my wife's son. (laughs) So I take zero credit for this. But he said, Dad, what a silly question. Santa brings me toys, and toys get dirty, and toys go away. Jesus gives me life. I said, buddy, you want to preach next week? (laughs) Just this last week in Starbucks, I'm talking to a guy 25 years old. I hope you're here. Matt, if you're here, I'd love to say hello later. We're talking about that, right? What's the difference between Santa and Jesus? Do you see the worldview of works righteousness? And do you see the grace that's offered in the baby in the manger? And do you see why there's a danger to letting Santa trump the nativity? I think he's there. I think Santa and the rest of us can hang out at the foot of the manger. Because that's where we find grace. What I really want for all of us is just simply gospel advancement in our life. At Vintage, we call it ongoing spiritual transformation, OST, because ongoing spiritual transformation is a long phrase to say. So we call it OST. I want that for you. I want that for me. Every day of my life, every encounter, every stop that I sit at, whatever's going on in my life, I want to experience more of the grace of God and experience it and give it. There was a young child years ago, maybe you've heard of this author by the name of C.S. Lewis. 
C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, included Father Christmas in Narnia, one of his Narnia books, often would correspond with readers. And one of the readers' moms wrote in to C.S. Lewis of a nine-year-old named Lawrence Craig. And that the son confessed to the mother that he might love Aslan the lion more than he loved Jesus. And this son was very troubled. Wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. He was saying, Mom, I don't know what's wrong with me. I love this lion way more than Jesus. And the mom's like, so C.S., how do I respond to this kid? Two weeks later, C.S. Lewis responds, tell Lawrence for me with all of my love that he can't really love Aslan more than Jesus. He can't. Even if he feels that's what he's doing, for the things that he loves of Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things that Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks that he's loving Aslan, he is really actually loving Jesus. And perhaps loving him more as a nine-year-old than he ever thought he could. Because nine-year-olds are just developing abstract thinking. They're just starting to understand what atonement is and what justification is. They don't know, but they know the lion. This is an opportunity for us to teach the gospel. For us to see the gospel for what it is. I think Lewis's answer is brilliant. He allows us to take something that that man has created, that he literally as a man created in Aslan, and say, here's an opportunity for us to get to know our Savior better. To get to know Jesus more. Because that's what matters for the gospel to advance. I think Santa is just one more example of that. And then finally, I would encourage you this morning, if your kids don't know who St. Nick is, talk to a gal this week in the office. She didn't know who St. Nick was. No big deal. I encourage you to figure out who St. Nick is. Because St. Nick is actually where a lot of this comes from. He was a real man. And what do we know about St. Nick? Honestly, it's not a lot. What we actually know about St. Nick is he was born in AD 280 in Asia Minor that later became the Bishop of Mira in Turkey. He died around 343 on or near December 6th, which is the day that the Catholic Church celebrates for his day of feast. Now, what do we know about him? Why did he become so famous? Why did he have... Places of worship dedicated him. Churches, Constantinople, named after him. He was loved and beloved by all of the church. But why was he so famous? Three things why this Saint Nick was so famous. This real man. The first one is this. He endured persecution. I got to tell you guys. Ultimately, Ephesians 5, when we're going to get there in a couple of months, I want to be like Jesus. But if there's another guy I want to be like, it's Saint Nick. St. Nick said, all that matters is the gospel. We talk a lot around here at Vintage Grace about what matters most. It's the gospel. It's receiving the grace that God's given us, and it's giving it away passionately, generously. St. Nick got that. He got that he was saved. He got that he was spared. He got grace, and as a result, he endured persecution. The second reason why I love St. Nick is he cared about theology. Theology is just a fancy word to say thinking rightly about who God is. In 8325, St. Nick, the story goes, there was Arianism going on. There was a man by the name of Arian who was threatening the truth of Jesus as all God and all man. And the Council of Nicaea, the story goes that Arian came and presented his supposed truth, which the church at that day said, this is heresy. Jesus is all God and he's all man. It's the mystery of the incarnation. It's what we'll talk about next week. And St. Nick was the one that supposedly walked in to that council, saw Arian, walked over, and slapped him in the face. That's a guy I want to be like. Go all braveheart on people? He said, this matters. 
The way we think about God matters, and we must think rightly. That's who St. Nick was. He was a guy that was persecuted for his faith. He was a guy that thought rightly, and guess what else St. Nick did? He gave gifts. He was known for being generous. He he was a, a wealthy child that inherited his parents' fortune, and he said, hey, I didn't earn any of this fortune. I didn't deserve any of this, and all I care about is the gospel. So what did St. Nick decide to do with all this money? Gave it away. He saw money the way that I want to see money. None of it's mine. It's all God's. So how can we be faithful with the money that God has given us and provided us? And St. Nick did that. In fact, one of the stories talks about three young women who were being sold into prostitution and slavery. It happened then, just like it happens today. And St. Nick took three bags of gold and he went and he paid their ransom so that they could be free. This is why St. Nick was loved. He thought rightly about God. He fought for the faith. And he actually did something. You know those theologians that sit in their chairs and they just think, but they don't do anything? Our mantra as a church is to be the living proof of loving God. St. Nick did this. He was the living proof of loving God. I encourage you, spend time with your kids or the strangers at Starbucks. Talk about this man. We should be making movies about this man. We should be saying, this is what life looks like. And in honor of St. Nicholas, the gift giver, Christians began to celebrate December 6th by giving and exchanging gifts. In fact, what would happen is St. Nicholas would come in his red bishop's robe and he would fill boots with gifts on the night of December 5th. Bad boys and girls, St. Nicholas feared. They feared him. But in highly Catholic parts of Europe, St. Nicholas became a deterrent for young children. Behavior modification. It started a long time ago. (laughs) Kevin DeYoung wrote this, one of my favorite authors. He says, in Germany, St. Nick was often accompanied by farmhand Rupert, who threatened to eat misbehaving children. (laughs) In Switzerland, St. Nick threatened to put wicked children in a sack and bring them back to the Black Forest. In the Netherlands, he and a helper would tie them in a sack and bring them back to Spain, which I guess was bad. I think it's a good trade. In parts of Austria, the priest dressed up as Christmas garb and he would visit the homes of naughty children and threaten them with rod beatings. (laughs) Thankfully, nowadays, he only checks his list. Not surprisingly, the reformers of the early church, Luther in particular, hated all saints' days because what happened is they became pagan demigods themselves. So Luther did away with Saints Day and the exchanging and giving of gifts on December 6th. So he wanted to make it about Christ. So he called it Christ Child Day, which translated from German was Chris Kindle. Sound familiar? Chris Kringle? Luther couldn't get rid of Santa. <laughs> he just took the word that they created. And now it's just one more of the many names for Saint Nick. But the reality is, what about us in America? How do we in the church today, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, hear from Santa? And what would Santa say if we would just listen? Here's what I think Santa would say. Because I think if we took that St. Nick, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've denied the divinity of Christ. Actually, the bottom of that quote says, and he'll slap your face. (laughs) But I encourage you, look at Santa. Because Santa would say something about works righteousness. Santa would say something about what matters most in the gospel. Santa would talk about the incredible example of St. Nick, his namesake. In fact, I think specifically if Santa was here this morning and preaching, this is what Santa would say. Santa would say, don't trade Jesus for me. Don't let him trump your manger scene. 
I offer earthly toys and things. Jesus offers eternity. I base things on merit. Jesus bases it on his merit and grace. I come once a year, but Jesus is always near. I can't solve the worst problems, but Jesus paid it all at the gift of the cross at Calgary for you and me. I can be put on a gingerbread house, but Jesus alone can rebuild your house when life falls apart. I'm not relevant in most of the world, but he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Worship him. I will someday be forgotten, even if Luther couldn't. But Jesus will forever reign. And this is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what I think Santa would say to us this morning. Santa would say, hey, you don't have to crucify me. Jesus already died for you and me. Santa would say, I need grace. Santa would say, I need love. I need a place to belong. I need hope for a savior that's way more than just one day a year. That's what Santa would say. Santa would tell us to be generous because Jesus is generous. Santa would tell us to be intentional because Jesus was intentional. Santa would tell us to be thankful because Jesus gave us the best gift ever. So as we look at gifts, as we celebrate things and as we celebrate stuff, may I encourage you this morning that the greatest gift of all is the gift of Jesus. That this morning we come together as a church and we're going to have fun. In fact, we're going to party in about 20 minutes. We're going to have food and photo booths and prizes. And some of you, you should deserve and earn prizes by what you're wearing this morning. (laughs) What we earn and deserve based on our merit is actually separation from God. Chapter 2, verse 4 in Ephesians, all of vintage grace said, but God. But God loved me. So underneath every gift, I pray that we see the greatest gift, which is the gospel, which is Jesus. I pray that we can see it this morning. I pray that Santa doesn't trump the manger scene. I think he'd be kneeling next to it if he could. I think he would be saying, God, you are good. God, you are great. God, you love me in spite of me. And I think that he would say, don't celebrate me, celebrate him. That's what I think Santa would say to us this morning. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate him. And we're going to start with communion. In front of you is is a bunch of bread that's been broken and a bunch of juice that's been poured. And it's symbolic of the night in which Jesus was betrayed when he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what Christmas is about. Remember the gift of the gospel, the gift of grace, the gift of the fact that we were far off from God, but God saw us and valued us and called us home. Maybe this morning you're here and you don't know that grace. Maybe this morning you're here and we talk about works righteousness and we talk about earning your salvation. We talk about earning all favor. Let me encourage you. Christ earned all of your favor on the cross. God's son. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, came to this earth, lived a perfect life that I didn't live, and died a perfect death on the cross so that I might have life in him. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. That's what when we see every gift I want us to see. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, I encourage you. 
Don't let this Christmas season go by without asking those questions. Why is Jesus better than Santa? Those aren't four-year-old questions. Those are 2,000-year-old questions. That's the opportunity we have this morning to stop and think. Who is this Jesus? My answer is simple. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of Kings. He's the one that I kneel to, and he's the one that I think Santa would as well. Father God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for while I was still yet a sinner that you died for me, that you found value in me. Thank you that life, eternity, is not a result of my good works or my efforts. Thank you that it's not about you watching like this God looking to pick out every little thing. You already saw everything in the ways I fell short, and yet you loved me. So, Father, I pray right now specifically for the people in this room that don't yet know you. I pray that this would be one step in that journey for them. That they would see the opportunity to ask this question. For those of us that know you, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate you to the tens. We want to celebrate you as much as we possibly can. And one way we do that is through communion. So thank you for giving us this gift. Thank you for giving us not just the birth but also the cross and the resurrection that gives us life. Right now, Hannah's going to sing a a, a Christmas song. I'm going to encourage you guys just to hang tight, just to reflect, just to think. If you treasure Christ, if you're here this morning, you want to celebrate, there's three stations available during this song. Get up and come. Take the bread and say it to yourself, this is God's body broken for me. This is the greatest gift. And dip it in the juice and say, this is God's blood shed for me. This is the greatest gift. And Hannah's going to sing a song that I think is every Christmas song wrapped up into one that helps us see the greatest gift. So if you treasure Christ, the banqueting tables are open. Come and receive the greatest gift in all eternity. I'm running the risk of uh, offending my in-laws, my brother and sister-in-law here this morning. But when we buy gifts at Christmas time, the amount of money we spend is directly tied to how much we love somebody. <laughs> and I think that's true of Christ and God. He gave you the greatest gift. He gave you a son. I've told you guys before, as your pastor, I wouldn't give my son for any of you, let alone all of you. He did it freely. That's grace. It's unmerited favor. So my encouragement to you guys this morning, honestly, I don't even really care what you think about Santa. Just make every day about Jesus. Every day. Every day. Every moment of every day about Jesus. The second thing I would say this morning is have fun. So tired of meeting Christians that aren't happy. You were dead and now you're alive. Man. Because we make every day about Jesus, that's what I hope that we see. We see that apart from him, we were nothing. But in him, we have everything. That's why Paul sits in prison and writes these letters about having more joy. Because he's like, you can't take anything from me. You know people like that? Invite them to Vintage Grace because I want to hang out with them. I need more of those people in my life.
I need to become more like that person every day of my life. Where nothing matters. Where you can't do anything to slow down the gospel impact in their life and the way they're using the grace of God to impact others. And the third thing I'd encourage you this morning is simply this. Live, lead, and love like there's more joy in Jesus than in anything or anyone else. So if that's the case, then Santa just kneels at your manger. I'm good with that. He kneels at mine. That's where I want to be too. It's why in Luke chapter two, when Luke's writing about the birth account of Jesus says, and the angels said to them, the shepherds, fear not for behold, I bring you what news news. of what that will be for all people. Brothers, sisters at Vintage Grace, this is our chance to actually be conduits of grace this season. I put on all your seats and invite cards for Christmas Eve. I love this season because we get to wear these clothes and no one makes fun of us. Because we get to go to Starbucks, we get these red holiday cups. Sure, all those things. But mostly because it reminds me how much I need Jesus and how much God gave for me. And that's news of great joy.